Either that or they're all spending their time at home struggling to get their solar observation project, project done, right? Uh, that, that is due on Friday. If you have it today, of course, I'll take it. If you're going to bring it in or email tomorrow is, of course, certainly acceptable. Quiz 7 is up and available and will be there through next Tuesday. So, yes, sir. Um, do, do not send, oh, can I get, pages has been an issue. I don't know if I can get, I think the last time I did it I had to do it on, I had to bring it in on the iPad to actually read it. I mean, because the PCs won't read it. You take it like PDFs? Yeah, PDF is fine, or if you save it into a Word format, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but. Um, okay, so quiz seven is the first of May. Quiz 8 is, is available for the 1st of May. Quiz 8 is the 3rd of May in class. And I'll tell you, I tell you what the quiz is in advance on this one. I guess I can go ahead and tell you now and then I'll remind you on Monday. I do the last quiz is essentially a list of 12 objects, which are like the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, you know, all the planets, and maybe a star and maybe a galaxy. And I ask you to put them in order of increasing distance. So if you know your planets in order from you know, Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, if you got that down, it's a very easy quiz. And that's all I'm asking for you on quiz four. So that'll be like the last five to ten minutes of class there. I'll give you that out. So quiz four? Quiz, quiz eight. Sorry. Quiz eight. That'll be on May 3rd. That'll be a week from today. And that's what I usually give as a last quiz, just that, you know, do you, can you tell me the planets in order, essentially? And I usually throw a star in a galaxy just to make it 12 items. So I do nine planets. I even include Pluto in it. And with the others. So as long as you know the planets in order, you know exactly what to study for that quiz and everybody gets a 12 on it usually. Well, 10s, 11s, and 12s, okay. But I usually don't get 2s and 3s on it. So don't, don't surprise me. Homework 8, which I gave out last time, will be due next Friday. And then there will be one more iTunes quiz, meaning that brings us to a total of 12 quizzes. Quizzes are only worth 120 points. I schedule it based on 10, so your two lowest quizzes will be dropped. So if, you're, if you don't do well on one of them, or if you missed a quiz earlier on, by the time I add these other two in, those oldest, the oldest ones or the ones that were the lowest grades will get dropped. So you're going to end up getting two quizzes dropped total out of the, out of the 12 that you've done. So you haven't I have not dropped anything. Right now it's exactly on all the quizzes you've taken, because right now we have well, if you've taken this quiz, you'd have exactly 120 points available in quizzes. So these two, as you take this one and this one, next week they'll drop, you'll, you'll drop the lowest of your quizzes. So if you missed one earlier on, it'll get dropped. If you got a two or three on one, which I, you know, I've seen grades in there, they'll get, they'll get dropped, as long as you do better on here. But, so hopefully that, that will only help you. It's not going to hurt anybody. So it's only going to take off the two lowest quiz grades. Did you have a question? I'm sorry. Do I have an extra homework yeah, eight? I might have that. And then last thing up there is final exam, May 8th. So meaning two weeks from now it'll be over and done with and graded and need one too? Okay. Anyone else? I'm doing? Cumulative. The final exam is cumulative. Yuck, I know. Uh, that's why I said it's split into two parts. You'll see two exams. You will get one exam is the new material, this material we've just been covering. So chapter 16 that we're finishing up today, chapter 17 that we'll be doing today and Tuesday, and then chapter 18 which we'll finish up on Thursday, on Thursday of next week. So you'll have one exam essentially on that material, and the other exam will be essentially material from these four exams. So study your four exams and the new material. You don't have to go back and study the book in the old lectures. Yes. 200. So it's equivalent to all your exams. So it, it adds up equally to all your exams. And I should say when you're looking at your grades on, on, if you do look at your grades on D2L, the lab grade is not added in at all either. So I don't know how the lab is going or how, they, how it's doing, but if you're doing well in the lab, that's going to certainly help you and that's not included anywhere. I don't, I don't add the lab grade in until the end when he gives me a total. So, yes? So you were doing Well, the lab is another 200 points as well. So if you haven't been showing up for lab, then it'll crush you. If you've been there for lab, then you should be doing 
Usually, I don't, I don't know. I haven't had him do it for me before, so I don't know how he handles his labs, so I can't speak. Usually, if you're there and you do the lab, you do pretty good. So, Other questions? I guess I should turn that on. On what's coming up. Seems like a lot of work. What, the final? No, it feels like a lot of work for next <laughs> week our last class. <laughs> But it's not, I mean, if you look, it's mostly quizzes, so. Three, three of that is quizzes, so. It's not like there's lots of big, there's one, one big assignment, littler assignment, yuck. <laughs> I know, I know. No other questions on that? All right, picture of the day for today then is morning, moon, and mercury. So we're looking at here, we have Troikin in the morning sky, you're looking at the thin crescent moon. And if you can see off to the right hand side, you see like a series of dots. That's actually Mercury. And you're seeing a set of images that were taken about several, several minutes apart. So you take a, take a picture every couple minutes. James, there you go, sir. Every couple minutes apart, you take an image, and as these were rising in the sky before the sun, you could actually watch them move up over time. Now Mercury is, or has been very nicely visible in the morning sky right now, or as nicely visible as Mercury can get. Mercury is a very hard planet to see, and in fact of all the planets, oops, another one. Of all the planets, it's the hardest one for people to see. Usually you've seen, if you've looked at planets, you've probably seen you know, Venus real nice in the evening sky right now. Mars is easy to see. Jupiter, well, usually easy to see. It's faded into the sun now. It's pretty hard, getting harder and harder to find. And Saturn, they're all, they're all pretty easy to find. Mercury is hard because it's always so close to the sun. So you can see it very briefly in the morning, right before the sunrise, when it rises before the sun, as in this picture. And you can see it briefly in the evening after sunset, other times of, other times of the year when it sets right after the sun. But it's always very close. You're always seeing it in the haze, in the twilight, looking, over, looking, towards, looking towards the sun, looking towards sunrise or sunset. It's never up in the dark of the sky like you can find Jupiter or Saturn or Mars. So it's much, much harder to see and much harder to learn anything about, which is one of the reasons we didn't know much about Mercury until we actually sent you know, a spacecraft there. Back in the 70s, the, one of the pioneer probes, or Mariner probes, and then more recently the Mercury Messenger has been there to be able to observe that. So, but just a pretty picture. Actually, the city is, is that, it's in Australia. Is it Bris, Brisbane? Yeah, Brisbane in Queensland, Queensland, Australia. So, looking in the southern hemisphere there, but pre pretty little image. Any questions? Stop right there. Yes, sir. No, this would be taken with a regular, just a, ca just a camera, just a regular camera. No binoculars, no nothing, because you're getting the whole scenery of the city there. It would just been, you know, what you do is have a camera set up on a tripod, and you'd open, you know, take your image, wait three, four, five minutes, click, take another image, and every three, four, or five minutes, take it until the sun started to get too close that you were blotting out everything, and just take a number of images, images there to see it. So yeah, no, no telescope or anything else involved in this one. Okay, questions? Okay, all right. Well, let's go finish chapter 16. We were almost done. And then we'll get on to the chapter we're actually supposed to be on this week. So we're almost caught back up to where we're supposed to be. Where were we? We were on this one. We were looking at gravitational lenses. There we go. So we'd looked at an image, we'd looked at one where there were two images of the same quasar last time. And here's one where you've actually got four images of this very distant quasar. So something very distant behind this foreground galaxy. And you're seeing a number of different images of it. And it's just a matter of light being bent by the galaxy. And that's something that's important. That's something that Isaac Newton didn't predict. That's one of the differences between Newton's gravity and general relativity, is that under Newton's gravity, light shouldn't be bent. 
Light, has no, light particles have no mass, so therefore that force of gravity between them is nothing. There is no force of gravity on them. They don't get bent. Einstein said instead, no, gravity isn't that force. Gravity is actually a bending of space and time. It actually, the mass actually warps space and time. And that will affect light. It doesn't depend on the mass. It only depends on the particles moving by it. So we see this in a number of different cases. We can see a number of things where we're looking at a very distant object. And we see multiple images of it by the gravity bending, bending it. And one of the things that it tells us, one thing we can do in terms of looking at this, is if we look at how much that light is bent, astronomers can go and calculate, OK, we're seeing these four images. We can work backwards. We can tell how much mass is there. How much mass does there have to be there to do that bending? Sort of like we looked at mass as things were orbiting. If you look at something orbiting around the sun, you can use that orbital speed to figure out how much mass there is, how much mass there is in the sun. Well, this is another way to determine masses of objects. How much mass is here? How much matter is actually there? Doing this bending, required to do this bending, it's a lot more than we see. If you see a galaxy's worth, you know, we see a regular typical galaxy worth of mass in there. But there might be three, four, five times as much matter required to actually have bent it this much. That should never have bent that much just based on the gravity's mass. It's coming back to what we started talking about earlier in this chapter in terms of dark matter. There's more matter there than we can see. And it's something that is not like any other kind of matter that we see. It's not like typical matter. It's not made, not likely not made up of the same stuff. One of the things that they currently think is that it's some kind of different odd particle. So some different kind of particle. So not made up of regular matter, you know, protons, neutrons, electrons that everything we are aware of is made up of, but actually some odd particle that may just exist throughout the universe and may clump and may add extra mass to these galaxies. So it could be not just, you know, not just a single massive particle, but many billions upon billions upon billions of really tiny particles that add up to that total, to add up to give it that total mass. Here's a couple more examples. On the one side, you get some images. And you can start to see all of these different images here. Uh, images of what's probably one galaxy here. You can actually see all this blue is actually been Im different images as there's all these different centers of mass, all these different galaxies. And, it gets and the light from this very distant galaxy gets bent around them. And you get a number of different images. And you start to notice the arcs in some of them, very distinct arcs. And I mentioned last time, if you get them lined up just perfect, perfectly, so line up this massive object and something directly behind it and the Earth, put those three in exactly in a line, then you get a ring. You would actually get it, instead of just being these little arcs, you'd get a complete ring of that distant quasar, that distant galaxy around your object. So you'd have to get something lined up. It'd have to be lined up perfectly to do that. But you could get, in some cases, you can actually here get some. We are trying to get close. You get things like different arcs and different things like that. So you get more than just single images as we looked at before. You can actually get more than that. So these are a couple more examples of gravitational lensing. And let's see, when we take that gravitational lensing, this is what I talked about before just a few minutes ago, here's the galaxy cluster. So we're pointing at, what is it, cluster of galaxies. So we're looking at some of these galaxies here. And you look at them and you see some stars and some galaxies in that image. That's the visible matter. And you can see how, t how closely concentrated it is. There's some galaxies, you know, a number of galaxies here. The one on the other side is if you use all that motion, how they're moving, how fast they're moving, and assume that they have to be bound together. Remember, these clusters aren't just flying apart. They're moving too fast. There has to be more matter there. This side tells you where all this dark matter has to be concentrated. So where must that matter to be concentrated in order to explain what we see? Do we know exactly what that dark matter is yet? No. I can't tell you exactly what it is. Except that it doesn't seem to be like anything we're aware of in our normal everyday experience. It's something completely different than that. It doesn't emit or interact with radiation at all. So it doesn't emit any kind of light. 
and light could mean x-rays, could mean infrared, could mean radio waves, it doesn't emit anything. And it doesn't absorb anything. Remember all the dust in our galaxy absorbed everything coming from it. Absorbed coming through it. It doesn't absorb anything. So if you think about it right now, you could have all these dark matter, matter particles, you know, they could be streaming through us right now and we'd never know the difference. They don't interact except gravitationally. And each individual one is not going to have enough gravitation, you know, any more than, you know, gravitation between you and me is pulling, you know, there's a gravitational force between every two people. It's not kind of weak compared to everything else, but it's there. Though the individual ones, but when you put billions upon billions upon billions of these together, you can actually concentrate the gravity and make it seem a lot more than it would otherwise be. So there is a lot more gravity there, it's just this dark matter and again we really do not know. They're searching right now for it, they're still searching, there's detectors that are trying to detect that really a rare event where you can get some kind of dark matter particle, particle to interact with something. Try to detect it, try to prove that, that they exist. It's not something they've been able to do yet. Will it come five years from now? Will that be a completely different lecture in terms of explaining this? Will there be something else that was figured out? Maybe. Or will we have detected one? Maybe. I can't tell you. Keep an eye on it and we'll see. Okay, so that's pretty much finishing up chapter 16. Let me, let me pause here. I'm going to give you a couple. Eh, let me go through the summary. Then I'll, let me go through the summary and then in between as I switch chapters I have a couple of short video clips I want to show you too to give you a little bit more on the dark matter. But let me go through this so it's sort of a convenient stopping point. Galaxy masses. We talked about that. How do we determine the mass of a galaxy? We look at their rotation curves. Rotation curve just means looking at the stars as they orbit the galaxy. And we would think that the stars that are furthest out would orbit the slowest. Okay? Fast orbiting fast in close to us like the sun, the sun, right? Mercury zips around the sun really really fast. Venus, Earth, Mars, slower, 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 get out towards Neptune and Pluto and, and they're moving even slower. We don't find that in galaxies. When we look at galaxies we don't see that. We see that they start going up, going up and they go up to a certain speed and then they just stay the same. So it would be like, you know, in the solar system it would be like Pluto zipping around as fast as Mercury moving just as fast velocity wise. It's still going to take it longer to go around because it's got a longer distance to travel, but it would be traveling just as fast speed wise. It isn't in the solar system because all the mass is concentrated at the sun. In galaxies it looks like there's got to be a lot of dark matter. There must be a lot of dark matter there that is affecting their rotation. We looked at galaxy evolution and I told you that Probably galaxies started out as little tiny ones, little tiny irregular galaxies and slowly combined together over the first few billion years or so of the history of the universe. So very, very early when we look back, that's when we were having the quasars and everything else. So as galaxies were colliding, creating black holes at the center and then feeding them, sending material into them, that produced a lot of energy. So there was a lot to do with collisions, mergers of galaxies and if you smash two spiral galaxies together, you know, I said you really, we talked about the evolution, how you couldn't really evolve from an elliptical galaxy because it looks nice and big and spherical to a spiral galaxy. Well, you could go the other way. You could take two spiral galaxies together and if you really smashed them together right, you could completely disrupt the orbits, use up all the gas and dust in an, you know, immediately, just smash everything together at once, form almost all the stars at once and then possibly create one way to create an elliptical. So there's a couple of different ways, you know, early on in the history that you probably could have been able to do this. And then we have, we think that you can go from the evolutionary sequence is not ellipticals to lenticulars to spirals, but more quasars, very energetic, very active, to normal active galaxies, you know, more normal, still more active than a regular galaxy but not near as intense, intense as a quasar down to a normal galaxy. So that may be the evolutionary sequence is that you go from these very active galaxies to a more normal looking galaxy. Question? Yeah? Why did you get that wrong on the test? I can look at it after. <laughs> galaxy clusters are bound, so you take galaxies into clusters and the clusters are bound together and we get much bigger scales and I'm going to come back to this at the beginning of the next chapter. Universe has structure 
up to a certain level. Beyond that, when you look beyond those 100 and 200 megaparsecs, which I know sounds gigantic, but that's still only small sections of the, of the universe, there's no sign of a big structure. You don't have things that stretch across the entire universe. It's more of like a little foamy structure. And the quasars are certainly good to tell us about intervening space. They tell us about space, especially if there is the gravitational lensing. If the lensing exists, then as we see it, that tells us a lot about the material in between us and the, gal- and the distant quasar, the distant galaxy, by how much material had to have been there in order to do the bending that we see. Okay, so let me get you a couple videos here. Let me see, there's the end of that one. Where did I put them? Here they are. Okay, I've got two here to show you briefly. They just go through a little bit and talk about dark matter and one talks about gravitational lensing a little bit. One of the things I do like about that video is that it does give you the idea that when you talk about the Big Bang when you think about it, and when the general person tends to think about it, you tend to think, oh, it's like, an expl- it's like a big bomb, right? It's a big explosion. We, you relate it to an explosion here on Earth. And it's something completely different. It has nothing to do with an explosion like, the, like where you usually think of where something explodes, there's a spot where it blew up, right? So where did the universe blow up from? It didn't. It blew up, it occurred everywhere within, the, within our universe at once. And the universe itself is what expanded. So it's not like a bomb exploding or anything else. It's completely different than that. And, oops, I'll do it there. So that's what we're sort of going to be doing in this chapter. And we'll be working on this today and probably finish it up on, certainly won't get through all of it today, we'll finish it up on Tuesday. And then we'll get on to life in the universe. But that's the whole, the whole idea of this, of the, the Big Bang, is that there was, you know, what was there, and some of that she talked about in the video, you know, what was there before the Big Bang? Well, we have no way to know. There's, and you can come up with all sorts of speculation, but there's no tests, no experiments that we can do to find out if, do those other universes exist? You know, is it universe and then, you know, bubbles of all different universes? It could be, but it's not something that we have any way of testing. So there's all sorts of things out there that you can think about that are, you know, really interesting, really cool to think about, but you can't really do anything, anything with them. So what we're going to do in this chapter, let me give you the summary here, is we're going to pick up sort of where we left off in chapter 16 and talk about the universe on the largest scale. So we're going to look at those same types of little pie diagrams that showed all the galaxies and what the universe looked like on the really biggest, biggest, biggest scales. Then we'll come and talk about the Big Bang and the expanding universe, how we discovered that, how we found out that it was expanding. It's something we've only known for less than 100 years now. A hundred years ago, the, the discussion, there was no discussion of a Big Bang. It, didn't, it wasn't really an idea. It wasn't understood that our universe was expanding even at that time. Then we look at the geometry of space and what that tells us about the early history and the fate. What's going to happen to the universe? You know, so we kind of do this in an opposite direction. We do the fate of the cosmos. What's going to happen to it? I can't tell you for sure. Sorry. Ruin the answer. I can't tell you, you know, what's going to be, be, what's going to happen in 50 years. I can give you some examples of what might happen, but we don't know for sure what, what will. And then we'll go back and look at the early universe. So we'll do sort of the ending of the universe first, then go back to the very early universe and how sort of we formed the large scale structure that we started off with and what we've been looking at throughout the class. So we'll sort of work it backwards in that way and that we'll look at what we've seen and what might happen and then we'll work to the very early universe and how nuclei, atoms formed, what we mean by cosmic inflation and that was mentioned briefly in one of the videos. She said about the the universe inflating and it sort of inflated incredibly quickly for a very short time. Very early in the history it went from being, you know, pinpoint to being universe size in tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And that explains, that, that idea of cosmic inflation explains some of the observations that we make today. So, starting off where we were, we looked at a diagram like this last time. This is the, shows that great wall. So one of the largest structures known in the universe was that Sloan Great Wall that goes kind of across a big chunk of it here. There's some other similar structures, not quite as big, that are around where there's more galaxies. But when you look overall, if you just take, you know, a chunk of the universe has a couple hundred megaparsecs, so something big, pretty big, you know, a big chunk of it, there's really not much of a difference 
on which one you happen to take. There's about the same number of galaxies, about the same density of galaxies. Again, ignore the fact that when you look further out, when you're getting way, way out there, that there's very few galaxies. That's just because we can't see them. So we don't know what's really going on. As you get too far out, you have to get better surveys that they're working on to try to be able to see out there. But it doesn't look like, it looks almost like a very foamy structure to the universe when you're looking at these very, very biggest scales. So what that means when I tell you that it looks the same, that each of those blocks look the same, a couple of terms here to define. The first is homogeneous. It looks the same. You know, homogenized milk, the milk is the same throughout. It's not separated into cream and milk and all of that. It's the same. So any block that I take, if I took that section of the universe that we had on the previous slide, cut it into blocks that were, you know, 300 megaparsecs square, real big area. Well, this one looks like that one, and that one looks like, and they all look about the same. They'd all be essentially the same. So it looks like the universe is homogeneous. No matter which piece of it I look at, it all looks about the same. It also looks to be what we call isotropic. Isotropic just means it's the same in whatever direction I look. So it's not like just all the sections over here are one way, but if I look over here, I see something different. But if I take a block over here and compare it to a block way off over there in the universe, they look essentially the same. So the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. And that gives us two, two things, two, two parts of what we call the cosmological principle, which says that the universe, we assume then, based on our observations, it looks like they are, that the universe is homogeneous, homogeneous and isotropic. It's the same, each block is the same, and it doesn't matter where I look in the universe, I see the same things. Now, hundreds of years ago, hundred, hundred years ago, there were a couple more assumptions was made, is that, that the universe was also not only homogeneous and isotropic, they thought those were probably correct even at the time. I mean, even with what we've learned since, those haven't changed. But it was also thought to be, what was it, Unch unchanging. That it would not be changing. That it was infinite and unchanging. So at the time, we thought the universe was infinite. It went on forever. No, there's no edge to it, right? It just keeps going and going and going. Where's the end to it? And that it was unchanging. You know, the universe wasn't changing at all. Well, we look at it, and you know, I've talked to you a little about the, yeah, there's a few little changes, but most of what we see in our lifetimes, it doesn't look like the universe is changing. So they were very reasonable assumptions at the time. So they had four things: homogeneous, isotropic, infinite, just went out forever. There's no end to it. Again, this is before we learned about the expansion and all the things that we talked about, and it wasn't changing. So the universe that was there now was there a million years ago, a billion years ago, a trillion years ago. It was always the same. And that led to a problem, those assumptions. That led to what we call Olber's paradox, which says that if these things are true, and if the universe is homogeneous, isotropic, infinite, and unchanging, that the night sky shouldn't be dark. It should be bright. In fact, it should be as bright as the surface of the sun. Because no matter where you'd look out, any point you choose to look out, eventually, again, consider it's an infinite universe, eventually you're going to hit the surface of a star. No matter where you look, again, it depends on these other things. Some of them we found out are incorrect, but at the time, it's like it was a big pair. Why is the night sky dark? It shouldn't be. If the universe is, is all of these things, and they made perfect sense at the time, some of them still do, no matter where you'd look, you'd go travel in one direction, eventually you're going to hit a star. Eventually go a little over this way, eventually you're going to hit a star. So the entire sky should glow as bright as the sun. So it should be incredibly bright, daytime and night. And why wasn't it? So what was wrong? The big question was then, which of these was wrong? And again, a hundred years ago, we didn't know. Is the universe not homogeneous? Is it not isotropic? Is it not infinite? Or is it not unchanging? We didn't know about that. We hadn't learned some of the things that we've since found out that have told us a little bit more about what's really going on in the universe. So, why is it, why is it dark? Well, I've already told you, the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, so that means it must not be either infinite or it must not be unchanging. What we found, of course, we have found one thing. We looked at Hubble's law last time. And we said that we looked at using Hubble's law, says that galaxies are moving away from us. So all the galaxies are streaming away from us. 
So what's going on there? Well, all of a sudden we don't have an unchanging universe. We have that things are moving, are moving away over time. They're moving away from us, so the universe is different. Different now than it was a billion years ago, than it was two billion years ago. There are things that are changing. And the universe itself is actually expanding. So there's one thing that is not, does not fit the premise of Olber's paradox. But again, it doesn't make, it's not as big now because we do have the understanding that, you know, while the first two are correct, the universe isn't, inf isn't infinite or may not be infinite and not, un and not unchanging. And it, it, is it is changing, not, it's not unchanging, you know, double negative, right? Not unchanging. So we've learned that. But it was a big, it was a big question, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, why is the night sky dark? Shouldn't we just, if the universe is infinite and that made perfect sense, why do we not see, why is not every place the surface of a star? Why is not every place I look as bright as the surface of a star? And again, Hubble's law was a big thing, a big thing in that finding out that the universe is actually changing and that galaxies are receding from us was a big part, was a big part of that. Big part of seeing that galaxies were moving. Now if galaxies are moving away from us, right, they're all moving away. That means that if you trace them backwards, they all would have been together, right? If they're all moving in one direction, they're all moving away from us really isn't special, it makes us sound like we're special, right? The, the, the Big Bang occurred right on us. It really isn't. It, does, it doesn't matter which galaxy you were on, you could go to a distant galaxy and go to you know, a galaxy billion light years away and do the same measurements, measure all, all the galaxies are moving away from you. Go to another galaxy on the other side, way over here, do the same measurement, measure all the, every galaxy is moving away from you. Every galaxy is moving away from each other galaxy. Yes, sir? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry? Well, you still have within clusters, you have, you have gravitational interactions within clusters still. So the galaxy's overall space is expanding, but within an individual cluster, there's gravitational effects that they're moving around. They're still orbiting around each other and they will collide together on those local levels. So it's the whole. The cluster is moving away. Such as when we talk about the expansion of the universe, give me one second. When we talk about the expansion of the universe, you know, the Earth isn't getting any bigger. You know, the Earth is still the same size. It's gravitationally bound. Our solar system isn't growing. You know, there's not more distance between the Earth and Mars now than there was a billion years ago. It's gravitationally bound. So when you're within that cluster, it's not growing, really. It's the distances between, that, that space between everything that is what is expanding. Does that help? Okay, sorry, yeah. Um, do they know the rate at which the galaxy is expanding? About 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So for each megaparsec they are away, they're moving away from us at about 70 kilometers per second. Pretty quick. I mean, 70 kilometers per second is not, 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 not a speed you're going to be going down the highway. <laughs> In the near future, at least. So, sort of what I, was going, what I was sort of leading into here is that you can go ahead and calculate it. So we can actually figure out how long, if all these galaxies are spreading apart, how long was it, was it ago that they were all together? If we know how far, how the distance, how far away a galaxy is from us, okay, we know its distance, we can measure that, and we can measure its velocity. So if we can measure those, then you can actually do the calculation here, but distance divided by velocity, but the velocity we measure from Hubble's law, if we get the distance from another method, Really, distance, distance, doesn't matter what the distance is, it cancels. Okay, whatever the distance is, however many megaparsecs, it goes away. All it is equal to is Hubble's constant. One divided by Hubble's constant gives you the age of the universe. So a quick way to get the age of the universe. What is Hubble's constant? What did I tell you the number was? About 70, I think, is a current, about 50 to 80, I think, is the current range. So it's about, let's go with about 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Meaning that a galaxy one megaparsec away is receding at 70 kilometers per second. One that's two megaparsecs away is 140. Three megaparsecs, 210. That's all that means. So if we do one divided by that gives us the age of the universe. Looks like it's an incredibly small number, right? One divided by 70. 
But the, look at the, the units there are what's really odd. You actually have to convert them. And if you convert kilometers to megaparsecs, then you get something on the order of about 14 billion years, which is our estimate for the age of the universe, just based on the expansion of the unit, just based on its expansion. Now that makes some assumptions, and one assumption that it makes, and we'll see some changes to this maybe in a little bit, but this equation works fine as long as velocities aren't changing. So if you're accelerating things or decelerating things, you need, you need a more complex equation. So that simple one, the simple version I've given you here says that, okay, they're expanding at this distance, at this rate, they're moving away from us so fast, and they've always been moving away from us so fast. You know, if, been, if they're a megaparsec away and they're moving at 70 kilometers per second, we're saying they've been moving at 70 kilometers per second the whole time. Well, that's probably changed, right? If they were closer to us at one point and they start, we were expanding, you'd think, and we'll come to this towards uh, probably on Tuesday, but you'd think, what, wouldn't they, they'd slow down, right? Right? They're expanding away from us, but our gravity's pull, we're trying to pull them back. But maybe we're not strong enough, maybe we don't have enough gravity, so they keep, but they'd, they'd go slower and slower and slower. And if we had enough gravity, they'd stop and come back, like when you throw a ball up in the air. But if you've got that super arm and you can throw it with the escape velocity, well, it's going to go up through the atmosphere and launch out into space and not come back to the Earth. Right? If you can throw it that hard. You, can, you could do it. But, it's, but either way, even if you throw it with that incredible velocity and it escapes, you know, you can throw it out into orbit, it's still slowing down as it goes up. So you'd still think that some of this would change, that some of this would actually slow down a little bit. So it's going to affect the calculations a little. Just giving you sort of a rough idea of how you can go about doing this with more complicated, um, you know, more complicated math, we can actually figure out better ages. And it usually comes out right around 13 to 14 billion years ago, everything would have been together. So, using that value of 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, it, takes a, it's t- would take about 14 billion years, roughly, for objects to get from a central point where they were all together. You know, everything, not just the Earth and the Sun and the, you know, all the matter that makes up the Earth, the Sun, the planets, the galaxy, all the galaxies, down into one, you know, hold it down here. Smaller than that, I can't even do it small enough, but incredibly tiny would have been about 14 billion years ago. And the thing, I've already mentioned this, but I'm going to emphasize it again, that really Hubble's law, it doesn't matter who's making, who's measuring. It doesn't matter if I'm measuring it, or somebody in the Andromeda galaxy is measuring it, or somebody in this distant planet orbiting some distant galaxy billions of light years away is measuring it. They're all going to measure the same value. Everything is still expanding at the same at the same rate. It's the universal expansion. So it doesn't matter who's really doing it, you always see everybody else is moving away from you. And one way to think about that, and I think that's the next, nope, let me go, I think it comes up in a second here. Let me go back, let me go back one second because I want to do that and then I'll come and show it again. So let me go back here for one second. But it doesn't matter who's measuring it. You have to think of it as the whole universe is expanding. And the best one of the better analogies to use it is a balloon. So if you take a balloon and draw little galaxies, stick little galaxies on it and blow it up, they're all getting further away from each other. Measure the distances between them on the surface of the balloon, right? They're so far apart before you start blowing it up, then they get this far and this far. Doesn't matter which galaxy you pick as your own, you know, pick one, okay? Every galaxy is getting further away from that galaxy. Do it again with this galaxy over here, every galaxy is getting further away from that galaxy. So it doesn't really matter which galaxy you pick, where we are in the universe, everything is getting further away from you. The other thing that kind of gets rid of is, if you think of it as the surface of a balloon, again, you're confined to the surface. Where's the center? If you're stuck, you can't get off the surface of that balloon. Where's the center of it? There isn't one. Right? If you're a little two-dimensional creature stuck on the surface of that balloon, and that's all you can see is the surface. You can't see up, you can't see down. There's no, ce- there's no center. There's no center of the expansion. It's outside of the surface of the balloon. Could the universe be the same thing in a multidimensional way? Now, trying to imagine fourth and fifth dimensions sort of blows your head, blows mine at least. If you can imagine it, please, great, explain it to me. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I can't, but that's a possible sort of an analogy to use to give you a comparison. Yes, sir? Yeah, I was, they were talking about the dark matter earlier. Mm-hmm. Is 
As far as I know, no. Yeah, as far as I know, I have not heard of one. That doesn't mean there isn't. But if I have not heard of anything that ties it together with other dimensions yet. It's usually just explained as the gravity, as the extra gravity. But it's certainly, I mean, I'm not going to say it couldn't be a possibility, but I'm not sure how it exactly would tie in. Yeah? Can you elaborate a little bit more on uh, what they're talking about with like, the, whole, the, the detectors, the dark matter detectors? Like, how mm-hmm. would they be able to detect it if it doesn't, if it can't, if it doesn't interact with anything on it? There apparently, and I was wa- looking at something on this this morning, that, that you can, it's to, like, remember we talked about the neutrinos. Neutrinos don't interact with anything, but on that one rare occasion they will. Well, this is sort of a neutrino on an even bigger scale. You know. But if you happen to line up just right that this dark matter particle happens to strike the nucleus of an atom, then there's possibility that there could be some sort of reaction, something that you could detect, some sort of evidence that you could detect of it. It hasn't been found yet. But the example they gave to compare it to, you know, how likely this is, was, uh, let's see, it was an archer shooting an arrow and hitting the target about a mile away. So it's not something that you're just going to, you know, yeah, I, I might even be able to hit a target in the back of the room once in a while with an arrow. But a mile away, you know, could you even, you know, if you could even launch it that fast, could you be that accurate to hit it? That, that's how accurately it has to be lined up. So that's sort of the big problem with it right now. It's just, you know, you've got to wait. And they've been looking for you know, a year, two years, and so on, wait, waiting for something to happen. And you don't know whether you're waiting for nothing because it's never going to happen, or you're just waiting because it will happen you know, once every five years, 10 years, 50 years. You know, we don't know how accurate it's going to be until we start to be able to detect some, sort of like the neutrinos we had. Anything else? OK. So let's go on and look a little more about the Big Bang. We take everything backwards. So if you take that balloon and deflate it, right? You have a big balloon there, deflate it. Imagine working backwards. Eventually, it goes back to almost to a point, right? Not quite in a balloon. It's not quite a perfect analogy when you get that small. But you can imagine a little tiny balloon. It almost goes back to a point as compared to what it, what it was. What was the big, so that was what we call the Big Bang. And where did it occur? It occurred everywhere at once. So it occurred every place. So it didn't just occur at some spot in the universe. There's no spot in the universe where we can say, you know, here's where the explosion took place, like you can do on Earth. You know, drop a bomb, you can say, well, the bomb hit there. We can see, you can see it. It occurred everywhere at once throughout the universe. And it's the universe that is expanding. And that's what we look at as the Big Bang. And they sort of gave you, she gave you a little bit of an idea of that in the video where she talked about, you know, it wasn't like a typical explosion because if you try to think back before the Big Bang and try to, you know, there's no space, there's no time, that was also created. So there was no space before the Big Bang. So trying to imagine, you know, not thinking just empty space, there's nothing. Again, your mind starts to go, right? You know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine, you know, no space any more than probably you guys can. You know, I can't imagine no time, you know, no time existing, no space, there was no, essentially nothing. And again, nothing isn't just like nothing, like, oh, it's out in the depths of space. Absolutely nothing. So again, that's, and then this explosion took place in that nothing, nothingness. And that's what is, supposed to, is supposedly supposed to have created our universe. Question? Yes, sir. Yeah, I have a question about um, time. Okay. I'll try. Is this, like, generally, do all astronomers believe that, or most astronomers believe that time is linear? You mean that you can't go backward? Other, unless you're getting real close to like a black hole or something, I would say yes. I mean, there's certainly odd things happen when you get close to a black hole. Like to say, like the universe, that was, yeah, that was the video you were showing. She mm-hmm. was mentioning that maybe it's been like a series of it created and then it like went away, got destroyed and it was created again. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. The bubble, how it sort of bounced back and yeah. forth. So it collapsed in a new universe and collapses in a new universe. If time, like to say it repeats itself over and over, how it keeps destroying itself mm-hmm. and recreating itself, is it like a, is it a general thought that, because if it was linear, you wouldn't think that it would <coughs> continually destroy itself or repeat itself? And not necessarily repeating. I mean, it wouldn't be repeating in any, I mean, it would creating some, you know, the universe would collapse. And a new universe, I mean, it wouldn't be the same. I don't know if that's what you're, 
No, it wouldn't yeah, be the same. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't come back, you know, 30 billion years ago, we were all sitting in the same classroom or something. <laughs> no, I already did it once. Why am I doing it again, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I mean, the, the time certainly could would be when you, if there were a collapse, which is a possibility where the universe collapses, it'd be what they call a big crunch, you know, big bang, big crunch, everything crushes together, you'd crush time and space out of existence. Then could they recreate again? Yes. What would be the time frame between that? I can't tell you. You know, would it boom, boom immediately? Would it be boom? No, no, there's no time. So is it a second later or 30 billion years later? It has no meaning because there's no time. The time is gone. It's messing with my head. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to test. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll try. I blow my head as much as anybody else's. So. Before the Big Bang, there was like nothing. There would have been nothing. And then it you know, happened. Yes. Well, what created the something out of the nothing? It's a good question. You don't what know. would it No. That's obviously. But you can, you can create in empty space, you can create a particle and an antiparticle. So you can create an electron and a positron. They can create, just ran out of empty space, they can create. They usually create and destroy themselves almost immediately, but it is something that can happen. It's a probability effect in quantum mechanics. So you can create any two particles. You, know, you can create a proton and an antiproton. You could create a me and an anti me, you know, essentially. You know, the bigger, the more complex it is, the unlikelier it becomes to do. But when you're talking about no time existing, you know, eventually certain things will happen. So could you just create a universe and an anti, you know, is there another anti-universe out there? One of the interesting things is, you know, if you create it like that, where is the antimatter in our universe? You know, we don't see it. You know, you don't see a galaxy that's made up of antimatter anyplace. So was it created? Is there antimatter someplace else? You know, is there another universe like they were showing? You know, universe and another universe is one of them made completely out of antimatter. And where there's very little normal matter that we call it, but made up predominantly of, you know, antiparticles. Another, a good, another good question, and lots of good questions. Heck, sorry I can't answer them better, but a lot of it we don't, we don't physically know an answer. Try, go ahead, go ahead. Um, that has to do with this again. Okay. This question. Isn't that almost like unscientific to say that it came from nothing? That would be like the spontaneous generation here. Is that what it was? Spontaneous generation or spontaneous reproduction from like before, like the 18th century, like before the 19th century? Mm -hmm. I believe that like if you... One of the people I think that disproved it was Louis Pasteur, but it had to okay. do with like you can put a bunch of stuff together and you can put all the stuff that makes life together and it's not going to yeah. make. And it is, but there, this is a quantum. It is, it is actually a physical thing that you can create particles. I mean, they, they do. It is known to occur. Yeah. It is. It does have a physical basis, but it's in quantum mechanics, which is you know a higher branch of physics, which blows your mind as much as some of the cosmology that you're talking about when you start getting to all these you know weird subatomic particles and the things that they can do. You know, it has a lot to do with probabilities. You know that there's some probability that I'm standing right here, but there's also some probability that I'm in the next room. It's incredibly tiny. It's incredibly tiny, and in 25 billion times the age of the universe, I'll never be there. But there's some small probability that I'm here and that I'm here. It works on the atomic scales. When you're talking about an electron, you can't know exactly where it is. You can't know. It's not. It's right there. No, no. It could be. The, could, you know. You can't know exactly where it is. And it has all to do with that and all sorts of probabilities in terms of you know how things can. So for that instant, they can. They can. You can make create things essentially out of nothing. So it's not. It's not quite the same as you know being able to put you know a bunch of stuff together and just having it spontaneously turn you know. Yeah. Turn into a dog or something, you know what I mean? Okay. They weren't, right. Right. They're not coming from the sandwich, they're coming from something else. This is actually something completely, this is actually has a physical, it does have a physical basis to it. All right, so, and the last part on there is just sort of remi reminding you again that no matter where you are in the universe, you know, Hubble's constant is the same. So if we measure Hubble's constant, we get the same value as anybody else. So here's the example, and again, we're going down a dimension because that's the way we can do it because we can't imagine a fourth dimension. We can imagine a fourth dimension of time a little bit because you can imagine that, you know, it's a different time now than it was a half an hour ago. 
Now you can at least imagine traveling a little bit through time, but a fourth spatial dimension, you have to try to imagine looking in a direction that is, you know, simultaneously perpendicular to up and down and left and right and forward and back at the same time. It's not there, right? You can't, you, but it, it can exist. It's just not something we can imagine because we're trapped in a three-dimensional world. If you can imagine a creature trapped on one of these two, on the surface of a balloon, all they can see is, you know, essentially left and right and forward and back. That's all you could see. Now, if you were a little creature here, a little circle on this, on this world, if you're looking here, you know, you can't look. This is your insides. You can't see. So all you can see is the surface of the balloon. You can't see up, out and out of the balloon. You can't see down into the balloon. It's just probably the same thing with us. You know, we can't see, we have no way to look in that fourth dimension of space. And actually the current theories go up to like 10 and 11 and 12, you know, string theory dimensions. There's multiple, multiple dimensions. So, not just trying to imagine one more, but try to imagine multiple, multiple dimensions more. But this is the example I gave you a little bit ago. And actually this is a little bit better than actually drawing the, you know, I mentioned you could draw the little galaxies on the balloon. That's kind of wrong just because if you blow up the balloon and you draw the galaxies, what's going to happen to them? Those galaxies are going to get bigger. That's not what happens. That's why this one does coins, stick coins on the balloon. Okay, the coin isn't going to get any bigger. Eventually you blow it enough, it's going to pop off because however you stuck it on, it's not going to stay, but that's another issue. Yeah? On the surface there may not be a center, but mm -hmm. there's still parts where it would expand at a lesser rate. And then in the middle, there should be a center because if everything is expanding, it's expanding from someplace. Right. But it's outside of the dimension that you can understand. Remember, you're two-dimensional two here. You can't look up, you can't look up and down. So yes, there's a center, and maybe there is, you know, that it's, but, it's, but it's not in our dimension. There's no place in our universe that you can see where you can say the explosion occurred. You have to be able to look in, you know, the twelfth dimension to be able to... Yeah, I know. I have, everybody's head's going to be... <laughs> a bunch of headaches. I should have brought aspirins, right? Okay. But that's the idea, is what's here, and just the example. And I sort of, I walked you through this before, but if you're on the surface of the balloon, there's a center to the expanse. Yeah, it's way down in there, right? But you can't see it. You're confined to the surface of the balloon. So it's not quite the same as being confined to the surface of the Earth, because I can look up, I can look down, but if all I could do was look along the surface, you know, if my eye were right here looking this way, all I can see is the surface of the balloon no matter how I look. I can't see up, I can't see down. So I'm not saying it's not there. Yes, there is, there is a center, but it's not any place in our universe that we can see. So if our universe you know, imagine yourself here is expanding like the surface of the balloon, but you're confined to it. That's the difference. You've got to imagine yourself confined to the surface of the balloon, and it's hard to say, well, I'm just going to look up, but you can't. You know, we have no way to look in that fourth and fifth dimension. We don't have any way to look that way. We can look and, I can look up and down, I can look forward and back, I can look left and right. I can't look another way that's perpendicular to all of those at once. But this is the example. This is just an example showing how the expansion works and how it doesn't matter which which coin you're living on, which galaxy you're living on, if I'm living here, and as I go further out, guess what? Every single galaxy got further away from me. If I lived here, every single galaxy got further away from me. So no matter where you were on this balloon, it doesn't matter. Every galaxy is still going to get further away from you. So it doesn't matter where you're doing the observing. Now if you were, at the, if you were some way to get to that center and still stay on the surface of the balloon, that's the problem. You've got to stay on the surface of the balloon and get to the center. Then you're talking about an ex, you know, a center of the expansion. There's no place. It's not part of our universe. The universe is only the surface of the balloon. Not the whole balloon, not anything else. Just the surface of the balloon. Yes, sir? I don't know um, how they can calculate this, but um, expansion, are they saying that it's infinite? That it's just... That the expansion is... Like, it's going to just keep as of right now, so that's the other one where the balloon kind of fails a little bit. Yeah, as of right now, it looks like it could go, it would likely go on forever. So it's not a balloon that's going to, not a thing that's going to pop. So it's not that the universe is going to get so big and boom, you know, Big Bang 2, <laughs> or anything like that. As far as we know, and we'll be looking at some of that uh, either later today or on Tuesday, I'll be showing you some of what we, what we see on that. But as far as we know right now, it just keeps expanding forever. It'll expand and expand and expand and expand and never stop. And that same expansion tells us 
that there is also a, it's a cosmological redshift that you can actually stretch out. The light, you stretch, not only are you stretching out the space, but you're stretching out the wavelengths of the energy traveling through it. So energy that's been traveling through that formed very early in the history of the universe has been stretched out. And in fact, this is sort of the remnant of the Big Bang that we see, the cosmic background radiation. Well, we'll look at that here in a little bit, but it is in the radio part of the spectrum. No matter where I look in the sky, it glows in the radio at a certain wavelength. It's not, not glowing, but it's there. You can detect it every single spot in the universe and essentially the same. But a long time ago, not, not last week, not last year, not a hundred years ago, but billions of years ago, it would have been in the infrared. The entire sky would have glowed bright in the infrared. Even earlier, it would have glowed bright in visible light. There would have been a time, you know, long before the galaxy and the Earth formed, very early in the history of the universe, there would have been a time when it would have been visible light throughout the universe. It would have just, the universe would have been infinitely bright, essentially, because it was just all the, all the photons traveling through it were all visible light. Those have since gotten stretched out. So they're stretched out longer and longer. Now when you look at a certain temperature, certain, certain radio wavelength, then it looks bright. You know, every place in the universe is bright at that wavelength. And that's what we call the cosmological redshift. It's just shifting it off because of the expansion of the universe, essentially stretching the wavelength of the light. Understatement, right? These concepts are hard to uh, comprehend, yeah. They, they are, and I, and I understand that. You know, I, don't, I don't expect that you're going to get a grasp. I want you to have heard them. I don't expect you to have a complete grasp on them or be able to or even claim that I can you know, picture, oh yeah, the fifth dimension, well, it's right there. You know, I can't go point to it. I can't even imagine it in my head. You, know, you can do calculations for it and things, but we don't have to do that and unless you want to go through all the math of general relativity, which goes through some pretty high level. You know, we're not talking just basic calculus or anything. You're talking way, way up beyond that to try to get the, the math of general relativity, to be able to explain how things work in general relativity. But some of the stuff we can talk about, and we're going to look at, look at some of that over the coming slides, some of the pieces that we can try to understand a little bit better. You're still not going to get the whole concepts down. And I'm going I'm to say that, you know, if you can try to imagine that, you know, three dimensions, four dimensions, five dimensions, try to imagine, you know, what does it mean to have no space and no time? You know, if you come up with a good way to explain it, please tell me. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to know. I mean, I can't really explain it. I can tell you that that's what it must have been, but I can't really tell you, you know, how to imagine it. That's not something I can really do. So what could happen to the, what could happen to the universe? Well, there's two things This we were just talking about, right? It could, could keep expanding forever or it could collapse. There's only two things that can happen to it, right? Can't do anything else. It either keeps expanding or it stops expanding. So these are the only two things. So if gravity is the only thing, if gravity is the only force that applies, well, there's four forces of nature that we know of, right? Electromagnetic, which really doesn't apply much in the universe because you don't have a lot of positive or negative charges separated from each other. They're all pretty much together. So you really don't have a strong you know, electromagnetic force. Then there's those two nuclear forces, the weak and strong nuclear force. Well, they only really work inside the atoms. So they're not really big over long distances. So what this tells us is that really it depends on gravity, which means that it depends on how much matter there is in the universe. Brings us back to dark matter, you know, how much matter really, really is there. Not just what we see, but how much dark matter is there. Depends on what's going to happen. So universe could expand forever. So that's, that, that's when I've got that super strong arm and I can throw that ball and I can launch it into orbit. Okay? You know, it's going to expand forever. I throw that ball fast enough, it's going to launch out into space and it's just going to keep going. That would be expanding forever. Earth is still slowing it down, right? Earth is always pulling on it. And it's always going to go slower and slower. Think of the spacecraft. We've sent you know, the Voyager spacecraft out back in the 70s. Well, they're, travel they're traveling way out towards the edge, beyond the edge of the solar system. They're still getting pulled by the Earth. They're still being slowed down. But they're moving fast enough that the Earth will never be able to stop them. So they've escaped from the Earth's gravity. Escape they're escaping from the Earth's gravity. They'll never get away from it, even if they get, you know, however far away they get, there's always a little tug from the Earth pulling them back. So it's always slowing them down a little bit. Sun would be tugging him even more and trying to slow him down a little bit more. But together, that's not going to be enough. They're moving fast enough that that won't make a difference. Or, more likely the case if I'm throwing a ball up in the air, it's going to come back down. 
right? It'll get up so far, it'll completely stop so the universe could expand to some level. The gravity could be enough, slowed it down. If it slows it down and stops it, it's not just going to stop, right? Because you still have all the gravity pulling on it, so what's going to happen? Once you stop it, then it starts pulling back down and it goes through everything backwards, essentially. You know, smash every, bring everything closer and closer together. So those are the two things that could possibly happen. You know, there's no, there's no other, there's no, in, there's not really a, there's sort of an in-between, but those are really the two things that you can do. You're either going to expand or you're going to collapse. Neither one of them is really a very pleasant ending for the universe. If you collapse, well that one seems obviously, you don't, you don't want to be around during that collapse, right? Because everything's flowing in on each other and smashing back in, you know, to make a giant black hole. Boom. Right? People wouldn't be around for that. No, you'd be gone before that. But I'm saying just the idea, if you could see the ending of the universe like that, the other one could be, it depends on your perspective, I guess, could be even worse. Because eventually if it expands forever, everything dies out. All the stars die. All the galaxies die. There's nothing left. It's just a very cold, empty, dead universe. Eventually, you know, it might take trillions of years, but eventually the last of the stars will die. And it would be, you know, Death by fire, death by ice, right? Yes, sir? The gravity is what they're saying would cause it. it you know, you're going to constantly, if you expand something, if you throw something up in the air, gravity is always pulling it down. If you throw it faster, it's going to get higher. It's going to get further away from the center, right? Further away from you. If you throw it even faster, if you throw it fast enough, it's going to escape. It's going to actually escape and go off into space. So it's gravity that is always pulling it down. But again, it does depend on that being the irrelevant force, and we're going to see that there's actually some other things that come in that might be part of this as well. Ice would be better. Ice would be better? Your heart would stop. <laughs> well, your heart's going to stop either way, right? <laughs> you wouldn't suffer. Yeah. Well, if, it, if it started to collapse, how fast would that happen? It would take, I would estimate it would take exactly, it would just be in reverse. It would be the same amount of time. Would you see it? I mean, it's sort of like if you throw a ball up. If I throw it up at 20 miles an hour, it's going to come back down at 20 miles an hour. I know, but so, would, I mean, would we see it coming like if, we just, if it just collapsed? It would take billions of years. You know, if it takes, say, say it starts it's collapsing, and it, say it's been 14 billion years, say it goes for one more billion, so 15 billion years. It'll take it 15 billion years to collapse. So it's not like it's something that even if it was collapsing now, that would be, ah, it's the end of the world. No, it's probably yeah, billions of years in the future. Yeah. <laughs> keep partying till the world's over, right? Yeah. yeah. Would you be able to notice that everything was disappearing? What do you mean that it was disappearing? That it was. You know how it takes the it'll take the light. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yes. You would see it eventually. I mean, it would. I mean, we can only see 14 billion years right now away. That's all we can see. So yes, the light travel time is that something disappears, you know, now, but it's a billion light years away. We're not going to know about it for a billion years. Not really. We still have the measurements. What we can measure now, we can measure. And actually, what we find is that things are actually moving away faster than they should be. So we actually, it looks like the universe, instead of decelerating and slowing down, is actually accelerating. It's actually, so something really odd. You'd think it's got to slow down, right? Gravity's pulling it. It's not. It's actually going faster than so it would be. That, that objects a long time ago were receding slower. So when you look further out, they're receding slower because we're looking a long time ago. When you look closer to, to more recent objects, they're going faster than they should. So it looks like things are recede, uh, that the universe has accelerated. But again, it's sort of that thing, we're looking in, t in time. So these are the two examples here. This is sort of looking at, here we are right now. You can't tell the difference, right? There's two lines here. Universe expands forever, universe collapses. It all depends on what the density of the universe is. So right about where you are, you know, where we observe, we can't really, you can't really tell. Wait billions of years, they'll start to deviate. And we're starting to get to the point where we can look at this and find enough detail. You know, it makes it look like we're exactly at that, uh, that point. No, you can start to see some sort of deviation depending on the exact density of the universe. You can start to see some of that. And we'll be looking at some of the numbers to try to explain what we can understand on that. But really what it's saying is how much density there is. How much, and density just means how much matter, how much gravity. How much gravity is there in the universe? If there's a lot of gravity, boom, pull it back down and collapse everything again. So it'll collapse, boom, will it eventually start up again and do it again and again? That's sort of what they were showing in the one video. That's a possibility. The other case is if there's not enough matter in the universe, 
which if you just count the stars and galaxies and everything we can see, there's not even close. There's not even close to enough matter to slow everything down. So that, boom, universe not only is expanding, but we're zipping out there, and eventually, you know, everything would be freezing. But the dark matter, and what we'll talk about next time on dark energy, sort of add a little bit to that and give us a little bit better understanding of it. it yeah? I mean, wouldn't you kind of think that that would be why it would collapse instead of expand? It depends on how much there is, though. But if we can look out and all we see is mm -hmm. darkness, but we can only, you can only see so far. You can only see what light has had time to travel. If something happened, you know, what happened beyond well, the furthest light travel time, we can't see. So if the universe comes to the inflation that I'm going to talk about next time, where the universe actually inflated faster than light. So it's possible that we're only, we're only in a little tiny portion of the universe. And we can't see the rest of it. We can't see the rest of it because the, it's now, it, you know, it used to be close together, but we had this inflation, grew real quick, and now it's, you know, 20 billion light years away from us. Well, guess what? We can't see something 20 billion light years away because there hasn't had, the light will catch up eventually, you know, come back 5 billion years, then that's, we'd be able to see further out into space. So, I'm going to end there. We'll come back to this tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, come back tomorrow? No. How about on Tuesday and try to blow your head some more on this? Then on Thursday, it should be a little, more, a little more back to normal. So if you have the projects, I'll take them now. If you're going to be emailing them by tomorrow, I'll take them as well. So we need